1922, the great Irish novelist James Joyce published his landmark work, Ulysses. It said that he had been commenting on the times when he wrote, I have to turn my head until my darkness goes. By 1966, in homage to that line, the iconic British rock and roll band, the Rolling Stones, would plead to see the sun blotted out from the sky. They exhorted the Empire's children to paint it black. No doubt by 1944, when they saw which way the wind was blowing, the Empire had already decided to paint it blue, all of it. This is a story about bluebirds and blue books. Have Blue, Project Blue Beam, and a Blue Planet Project. But like every other story, it has a beginning, which along with its ending is only part, part that is really true. In 1947, Andrea K. Paharic received his medical doctorate from Northwestern University through the Army Specialized Training Program. While he had still been in school, he had burst into the field of cognitive science with his groundbreaking paper, Theory of Nerve Conduction. The paper postulated that neuron units radiate and receive waves of energy in the ultra-short wave bands below infrared and above the radar spectrum, effectively making them a biological radio, a receiver transmitter. Baharich's theory was an epiphany for Jose Manuel Rodriguez Delgado, who had a fellowship at Yale, and at the time, Baharich published and is widely believed to have been the lead technical scientist in the CIA's infamous MKUltra project. About a half a decade later, Delgado would co-author his first paper on implanting electrodes into human brains. It would go on to author 134 scientific publications over the next two decades on electrical stimulation of cats, monkeys, and humans. A born showman, Delgado once had a bull with one of its patented stimulus implanted in his its brain, charge him in the middle of a bull ring in Cordoba, Spain. Unperturbed, he pressed a button on his handheld remote control and stopped the beast in mid-charge. He was an outspoken proponent of a better world through cybernetic mind control. He even wrote a book on the subject titled Physical Control of the Mind Toward a Psycho-Civilized Society. He was the ideal villain while Paharic worked from the shadows. In turning, Paharic carried out experiments with drugs that were sponsored by Sandals and Chemical Works and the pharmaceutical company that developed LSD. During that period, he was influenced by the pioneering work of Joseph Banks Ryan, the founder of parapsychology, and upon completion of his internship, Buharic studied ESP as an extension of his work with nerve conduction at university. Always in the mood for explanations, he once remarked that what he was trying to establish is that the brain is an area wherein is localized the cell energy of the body, I shall label this cell energy dynamics. I further venture to say that the transference of dynamics from one person to another is possible. Paris pointed out that it was common knowledge that there are people who can thrill and exhilarate one, and that there are others who simply bore and fatigue one. This implies that there, there is a wireless, touchless transfer of this vital substance, If dynamics can be transferred from one organism to another, why cannot that other function of the mind, thought, also be transferred from one mind to another mind? It is also conceivable that dynamics, 
not only passes freely between persons, but also dissipates out into the atmosphere. In 1949, Poharich met Eileen Garrett, founder of Parapsychological Foundation in New York City. She would introduce him to John Hayes Hammond Jr., the man who would be his closest friend for the next decade, and in Poharich's own words, his mentor. The online encyclopedia Wikipedia hails Hammond as the father of radio control. That means sending signals to remote-controlled devices. A product of Yale and filthy rich from birth, Hammond passed away in 1965 at 76, owning 800 foreign and domestic patents on more than 400 inventions, primarily in the fields of radio control and naval weaponry. In 1989, Hammond had built his own, by 1989, Hammond has built his own castle replete with drawbridge overlooking Gloucester Harbor in Massachusetts. It's now a museum offering guided tours of its legendary Roman, medieval, and Re- Renaissance art collection. Most of the facts about MK Ultra, from affidavits and testimony given to the Rockefeller Commission, then the Church Committee, and the single surviving official report that they managed to, to get their hands on, the report was prepared by the Inspector General's office in 1963, when the surreptitious administration of drugs to unwitting test subjects in the MK Ultra program was supposedly terminated. The report defines MK Ultra as research and development of chemical, biological, and radiological materials capable of employment in Claudstein operations to control human behavior. It goes on to say, additional avenues to, control of, to the control of human behavior had been designated as appropriate to investigation under the MK Ultra Charter, including radiation, electroshock, various fields of psychology, sociology, and anthropology, graphology, harassment substances, and paramilitary devices and materials. Any other reliable information about NK Ultra is gleaned from testimony given during the Senate hearings in 1977. The hearings were prompted by the seven boxes of documents containing some 8,000 pages that the CIA had turned up earlier that same year in response to the FOIA request. The heavily censored documents surfaced in early 1977, even when Richard Helms, director of the CIA from June 30th, 1966 to February 2nd, 1973, had ordered all documentation pertaining to MKUltra destroyed during his tenure. The new documents survived only due to a clerical error. They are budgetary data and give little additional information from what had already been obtained by the Rockefeller Commission and the Church Committee. Some surviving information pertaining to MK Ultra was officially declassified in July 2001. The legend of MK Ultra began at the end of 1974 when journalist Seymour Hersh, in an article published in the New York Times, accused the CIA of conducting experiments on American citizens and of sundry other nefarious acts on American soil during the 60s. In the beginning of 1975, responding to national outrage, President Gerald Ford convened the United States President's Commission on CIA activities within the United States. Ford's commission was known as the Rockefeller Commission because it was headed by then-Vice President Nelson Rockefeller. 
Considering the Rockefeller Foundation's well-known relationship with Ira Einhorn, self-proclaimed planetary catalyst, and no doubt MKUltra poster boy, if not Paharich himself, a Rockefeller investigation was not going to please the assorted senators and congressmen who had any idea of what had been going on. They launched their own investigation, formally titled the United States Senate Select Committee to Study Governmental Operations with Respect to Intelligence Activities, known simply as the Church Committee. Because it was chaired by Senator Frank Church, Admiral Stansfield Turner served as director of the CIA from 1977 to 1981. It was his job to run damage control during reformism of the Carter administration. A Christian scientist and reformist himself, he was highly critical of the agency's culture of secrecy. Turner would eventually advocate the, advocate the dismantling of the CIA in a 2005 book titled Burn Before Reading, Presidents, CIA Directors, and Secret Intelligence. As the acting director of the CIA in the 77th Senate hearings, Turner testified that there were 149 MKUltra projects, many of which appeared to have some connection with research into behavioral modification, drug acquisition, and testing or administering drugs surreptitiously. Seemingly lost in all the ramifications of the mind control experiments was what Turner said a few sentences later about there having been 33 additional sub-projects concerning certain intelligence activities previously funded under MKUltra, but which have nothing to do either with behavioral modifications, drugs, or toxins, or any closely related matter. Turner goes on to testify that there were 80 institutions where work was done. The institutions included 44 colleges or universities, 15 research foundation or chemical or pharmaceutical companies or the like, 12 hospitals or clinics, in addition to those associated with the universities and three panel institute, penal institutions. Seemingly, the rest of the hearings consisted of a visibly penitent Turner and his CIA entourage being chastised by a blustering Senator Ted Kennedy and assorted other political grandstanders. As it had been in 75 and 76, the human experimentation, voluntary and otherwise, was blamed on Dr. Sidney Gottlieb, the CIA's technical ser- of the CIA and the CIA's technical services staff. That's TSS. Gottlieb had retired in 1972, and as it turned out, had a really bad memory. He was not in Turner's entourage. All Turner could do is look remorseful as the incredulous Kennedy asked him why. Every single document that the staff reviews has Mr. Gottlieb's name on it. And you come to tell us we don't have to worry anymore. We have these other final facts, and Mr. Gottlieb has not been talked to. Gottlieb never would talk. Guys like Gottlieb never do. Dr. Sidney Gottlieb, whose real name was Joseph Schneider, was a club-footed Jew from the Bronx. His degree in chemistry was from the California Institute of Technology, better known as Caltech, the progenitor of jet propulsion laboratories. Caltech continues to manage and operate JPL to this very day, much the same way that JPL manages and operates Nassau. Gottlieb would have been attending Caltech right about the time Jack Parsons was putting together 
JPL, together with Theodor von Karman, the Jewish aerodynamics genius who fled Germany in the early 30s to assume the directorship of Guggenheim Aeronautical Laboratory in Caltech. Karman was a direct descendant of the Mariella Plague, Jadoa Len Ben Bezalzel, a legendary master cableist from the 16th century. Like Delgado, Gottlieb had been born to play his part. When he showed up at their door in 1951 at the age of 33, seeking gainful employment as a poison expert, the CIA must have thought he had been sent by central casting, pale, gaunt, and expressionless. Gottlieb could have taught Peter Lorre a thing or two about creepy. If he had been born a decade or two earlier, he would have been sitting in Rosie Gold's candy store on the corner of Saratoga and Livonia Avenue in Brooklyn, playing cards with fingering his ice pick in, the, in his pocket, waiting for an assignment from Murder Incorporated. According to Wikipedia, Gottlieb was known in the TSS as the Black Sorcerer and the Dirty Trickster. Others say he was known affectionately as the Gimp by his friends he didn't kill. When he retired, he became very elusive and for a while ran a leper colony in India with his wife. He died in 1999, spending the final years of his life caring for terminally ill patients at a hospice. Earlier during the Rockefeller Commission, the church committee, what the CIA could not blame on Gottlieb, they blamed on Dr. Ewan Cameroon. Cameroon was a fanatical Anglophile and a Scotchman. He was in attendance at the Nuremberg trials and had a pathological hatred of Germans, which he justified through his pseudoscientific theories. In his 1948 book, Life is for Living, Cameroon advocated preventing Germans from having children or rising to any kind of position of authority because they were genetically and culturally predisposed to war. Ironically enough, considering the charges that have been leveled against National Socialism, Cameroon's ideas were based on eugenics. Cameroon envisioned an Anglo empire free of Germans and strictly regulated by behavioral science, his psychic driving techniques, in order to produce personality splits, redefine torture as a fine art. He was described as an enthusiastic sadist and general practitioner of every imaginable manner of medical malevolence by anyone who ever had ever watched him work let alone come, came under the misfortune of being in his care. Cameroon was actually quite insane himself, and considered operation, considering Operation Paperclip must have been a big hit in the CIA social circles. When he died abruptly in 1967, climbing a mountain, making him an ideal fall guy, an autopsy probably should have been done. Much of what, is, what was obtained through the FOIA has been blackened out, and Turner refused to name at least 21 of the institutions and many of the names of individual researchers involved in MKUltra. He cited Exemption 3 of the FOIA, which stipulates that the agency does not have to disclose matters that are specifically exempted from disclosure by, stat, by statute, provided that such statute refers particularly types of matters to be withheld. The CIA contended that the information requested fell under the Exemption 3102D3 of the National Security Act of 1947, which states the Director of Central Intelligence shall not be responsible for protecting intelligence sources and methods from unauthorized disclosure. Rather, the Director of Central Intelligence shall be responsible for protecting intelligence sources and methods from unauthorized disclosure. 
The legal wrangling continued well into 1985 when the Supreme Court would finally make a decision in the CIA versus Sims number 83-1075. The court said, we hold that the Director of Central Intelligence properly invoked 102-D3 of the National Security Act of 1947 to withhold disclosure of the identities of individual MKUltra researchers as protected intelligence sources. We also hold that the FIA does not require the director to disclose the institutional affiliations of the exempt researchers in light of the record, which supports agencies determina- the agency's determination that such disclosure will lead to an unacceptable risk of disclosing the source's identities. Factoring in the Supreme Court decision, it can be safely concluded that the CIA's internal memoranda on NKUltra have remained undisclosed to this day, except for the ones they want disclosed. In an internal memorandum to the director released from FOIA documents in 77, the CIA evaluates the documentation itself as harmless. David S. Brandwine, the then director of the TSS, crows to his director that there was nothing in the newly located files that would indicate the MK Ultra activities were more extensive or more controversial than indicated by the Senate Select Committee report. If anything, the reverse is true. A smug Brandwine then goes on in the memo to urge his director to release appropriately sanitized material, first to the Senate, then to the lawyers. Alfred W. McCoy, acknowledged by Wikipedia and practically everyone else as the world's leading authority on underworld crime syndicates and international political surveillance, is adamant that the CIA deliberately misdirected the attention of the MKUltra investigation to its most ridiculous programs. In McCoy's opinion, this was done in order to distract unwanted scrutiny of the project's primary focus, which he feels were torture techniques. Regardless of its true intentions, what does not appear to have been spoon-fed to, by the CIA to those inquiring about MKUltra is the impression of, of intelligence operatives behaving like frat boys on Easter vacation. The premise is that the professional spies, the best in the world, many with decades of service in war zones, were indiscriminately dosing each other and everybody else in their vicinity with their brand new toy from Sandoz Laboratory, LSD. Just a classic case of spooks gone wild and boys will be boys. Initially, everybody in the TSS was required to take LSD. Two agents would administer the drugs to themselves, then they would sit in a closed room and each would take notes on how the drug affected the other. This quickly progressed to the agents surreptitiously dosing each other morning coffee. One agent is known to have run down D.C. Street screaming in terror as he fled the monsters he saw in every car. But by far, the most notorious case was the strange death of Dr. Frank Olson. In the early morning hours of November 28, 1953, Olson, a bacteriologist and biological warfare specialist out of Camp Dietrich, now Fort Dietrich, and deployed into the MK Olson project by way of the TSS, plunged from the 13th floor of the Hotel Statler, splattering on the pavement below like a bug on a car windshield. The macabre spectacle, perhaps a statement, played out right in front of Madison Square Garden in midtown Manhattan. He was under the supervision of his TSS deputy director, Robert Lashbrook, 
who was the only one in the room when local authorities arrived. He had been sharing a room with Olsen. Lashbrook claimed to have been sleeping when Olsen took the plunge. When the hotel manager who got up to the room first told Lashbrook his friend was now a stain on the pavement outside, Lashbrook went to the telephone, rang a number, and said Olsen's gone. He then hung up and went to the bathroom and sat on the toilet with his head in his hands. Olsen, as the story would eventually turn out, had been slipped some LSD by the then TSS director Gottlieb at a meeting in a Maryland farmhouse nine days earlier. Olsen suffered a nervous breakdown. Absurdly enough, Lashbrook then took him to New York City to get treatment from Dr. Harold Abramson, an allergist and pediatrician who worked for the CIA. Not at all surprisingly, the death was ruled a suicide. When the incident was brought to public attention by the Rockefeller Commission in 75, perhaps as a compensatory exercise, Olson's family was invited to the White House for a personal apology from President Ford and given $750,000, the maximum amount allowable under United States law. In 1988, the CIA would pay Cameroon's Canadian victims the same sum. That money was leased over the objection of the Canadian Prime Minister Brian Mulroney's rabidly conservative government, which seemingly had every intention of dragging it out in the Canadian courts until the litigants died of old age. CIA Director William Webster is quoted as saying, sometimes you see the right thing to do and you do it. The cash wasn't good enough for Olson's son, who in the mid-90s, after his mother died, had his father's body exhumed in autopsy. The autopsy was performed by Dr. James Stars, professor of law and forensic science at the National Law Center, George Washington University. Contrary to the original medical report, Stars found no cuts and abrasions on the body, as would have been caused by diving through a window. What Stars did find was a hematoma on the left side of Olsen's skull, which he speculated was caused by a hammer, the same hammer that would have been used to break the window in preparation for Olsen's early morning flying lesson. He concluded that the forensics were rankly and starkly suggestive of homicide. Olsen got his Ph.D. in bacteriology in 1938 by the way of the University of Wisconsin. Afterwards, he served as captain in the Army Chemical Corps. Those who now serve in the Chemical Corps are called Dragon Soldiers. After its blue and gold regiment, regimental insignia approved in 1986 to replace the old one of a cobalt blue enamel benzene ring superimposed over two cross, cross gold retorts. The old one had been in service since World War I. The new regimental insignia is emblazoned with the Latin motto, Elementus Regamus Prolemium, let us rule the battle by means of the elements. The bottom left-hand corner of the insignia depicts a gnarled tree stump, such as those found in no man's land in World War I battlefield. The top right-hand corner depicts the rampant chlorine, a rampant chlorine-breathing green dragon of alchemists in which the dragon soldiers take their name. In 1943, Olsen was a civilian. It was as a civilian that he was recruited by Ira Baldwin to work in the Army Biological Warfare Laboratories in Camp Dietrich. Baldwin had been Olsen's departmental supervisor at UW and was working closely with the military and George W. Merck to establish a top-secret biological weapons program. Merck, an alumnus of Harvard, was the son of and heir of Frederick Merck, who immigrated from Germany in 1891 to establish E. Merck & Company on 62 Wall Street. 
Before World War I, E. Merck and Company was a subsidiary of the German chemical colossus Merck KGNA. After 10 years, Olson was the Army Biological Warfare Laboratory's senior bacteriologist. Sometime during all this, he became an employee of the CIA and the TSS. The official story of Olson's death was vague, to say the least. The CIA even gave him a closed casket funeral, ostensibly because his head was so badly lacerated. Lashbrook, though in attendance at the funeral, never even bothered to tell Olson's family that he was actually in the room on the night Olson exited through the window. From 1950 to 53, Olson had been commuting regularly to England, collaborating with British microbiologists at Porton Down near Salisbury in Wiltshire. Porton Down is England's real-life answer to fiction's Frankenstein's castle. There, the Empire's homegrown mad scientists played with their newest toys, acquired as dividends from the Third Reich in the aftermath of World War II. Among this treasure of horrors was Tabone, Sarin, and Somane, at the time, the most lethal nerve agents known to man. During his time with them, Olson witnessed the British carry on what the CIA not so euphemistically dubbed terminal experiments. In at least one known case, the British murdered one of their own soldiers, an unwitting volunteer thought he was participating in research to cure the common cold. According to witnesses, he died horribly, frothing at the mouth and contorting in agony like a slug doused with salt. They were attempting to ascertain just how much of the German nerve agents it would take to kill a man. Also reported the disturbing impressions left on him by what he had seen at Porton Down to Holly Street psychiatrist Dr. William Sargent, the finest psychiatrist in all of England. Of course, Sargent was also under the auspices of British intelligence. Sargent, in his capacity as an operative for MI6, Totally assessed Olson as a security risk right then and there. Sometime in the summer of 53, Olson took one of his frequent trips to Germany. What he saw there changed him, spooked him real bad. The people who knew him said he was changed man after he got back to England. He could no longer go on in the capacity of, of senior bacteriologist in the MK Ultra program. He went back to Sergeant and told him he wanted out of the CIA. Sergeant, ever the loyal soldier of empire, immediately reported Olson to his MI6 handler. It's a foregone conclusion that Olson was a dead man walking after that. Olson, obviously not a diplomat, had been used, issued a diplomatic passport back in April of 1950. This enabled him to carry pouches that were not subject to custom searches. It has recently been insinuated by Annie Jacobson in her book, Operation Paperclip, but Olsen had been taking full advantage, flying to Frankfurt and making the short drive out to Camp King. There, according to documents obtained from the FOIA and interviews with Olsen's former partner, Norman Krotnoyer, Olsen was an agent of empire used unconventional interrogation techniques on, on Soviet prisoners. It has always been assumed because the CIA has always insinuated that Olsen was using mind-altering drugs in terminal experiments on Soviet spies, captured by the Gellin organization as a forerunner and progenitor of Germany's federal intelligence agency, Bundeswehr BND. But Olsen would have been acting under the instructions of the former Deputy Surgeon General of the Third Reich, the notorious Dr. Kurt Blom. Blom's wartime field of expertise was well known to be bacteriology. Over and over again, 
what has become the academically orthodox lore of MKUltra, there is the repetitive theme of acid dreams. It's well documented that LSD was used at Camp Kane, but there were other far more nefarious and terrible things taking place there and being transplanted back into the empire by the personnel of Portendown, Camp Dietrich, and Edgewood. Olson was a bacteriologist, the senior one in the program. If anybody was dosing personnel with LSD at that higher level for the CIA at the time, it would have been Paharich, their premier expert on those matters. By early 1953, Paharich had been redrafted after presenting a paper to the Pentagon about clairvoyance on behalf of Essentia Research Associates. He was serving at the rank of captain out of the Army Chemical Center in Edgewood, Maryland. Edgewood Arsenal, part of Aberdeen Proving Ground, is one of the most secret military bases in America and has been for a very long time. The high and foreboding fence stretching around its approximately 13,000 acres attests to that right from the first impression. It is the playground of the Army Chemical Corps. Located in the secluded area on the Chesapeake Bay, it is 20 miles out of Baltimore and just about 70 from Camp Dietrich. All through the late 40s and 50s, Edward, Edgewood, through Operation Paperclip, was the destination for an ecliptic assortment of the Reich's most malevolent mad scientists. Much of the human experimentation for MKUltra was taking place there under the orchestration of Dr. Ray Treckler, assistant director of Edgewood's medical laboratories and an employee of the TSS. Dr. Harold Abramson, the allergist who was on record as being Olson's therapist in New York City, and as it would turn out, flight instructor, was working at, uh, out of Edgewood. Ira Einhorn, now convicted of Holly Maddox's murder and doing life, insists Paharch, his one-time mentor and benefactor, was Gottlieb or the Gimp's go-to guy on hallucinogenics. Einhorn now claims Paharch was involved up to his neck in Olson's terminal pre-dawn flying session. Not even the Joint Intelligence Ob- Objectives Agency, uh, JIOA, charged during Paperclip and Project 63 with bringing National Socialist Scientists to America at all costs could get Dr. Kurt Blom in. Hollywood could not have invented a better not evil Nazi genius. Blom actually bragged to all Soul's agents how he had intended to let the Soviets have it with the bubonic plague under the 1943 directive from Heinrich Himmler that planned to ignore Adolf Hitler's moratorium on biological and chemical weapons in the Third, Third Reich. The Soviets, overrunning Blom's lab before he could get it going, was the only thing that stopped them. It is a matter of public record and still is that Blom directed all manner of atrocities against Poles while experimenting with biological warfare behind Hitler's back on the Eastern Front. Blom's method of treating Poles, incapacitated by tuberculosis, was to kill them. At times, he even used the plague to euthanize those that were too sick to work in the camps. Yet Blom was acquitted of all charges in his 1947 Nuremberg trial. Two months later, four representatives from Camp Dietrich, the CIA's biological warfare program, showed up in Germany to interview him. What he told them about biological warfare no doubt made them swoon. But because of the statements he had made to Olsos, he was inadmissible for immigration to America. Instead, after all legal wrangling failed, Blom was put to work in 1951 for the Army Chemical Corps as the lead doctor at Camp King. 
To this very day, the CIA routinely gives the Glomer response to FOIA requests for documentation about what Bloom told the agents of Camp Dietrich and exactly what he was overseeing for the Army Chemical Corps at Camp King. After lengthy legal battles in 1976, the U.S. District Court of Appeals upheld the CIA's right to answer journalist Harriet Philippi's FOIA request for information about the research ship Glomar Explorer by simply saying, it can neither confirm nor deny the existence of the requested documents. The CIA now makes standard use of this sentence to legally brush off FOIA requests to which it doesn't want to comply without voting Exemption 3, 102D3 of the National Security Act. It's known from April 18th to 1944 entry in the diaries of the executed Wolfram Siegers, Reichsfuhrer for Managing Director of the Enerby, the Plum was carrying out experiments in neutron radiation. In April, of 19, in April 26, 1944, entry shows Blom was also contemplating human experimentation with bacterial p- pathogens, although it doesn't say what pathogens, nor does it give any details as to exactly what Blom was doing with neutron radiation. But it is known during his interview with agents from Camp Dietrich, Blom recommended the use of Seracia marcescens, an bacteria as Yersinia pestis, the bacterial pathogen that causes bubonic plague and a perennial favorite of Blom. In September of 1950, a Navy minesweeper drifted silently a couple of miles off the coast of San Francisco for six days. It sprayed clouds of Seracia marcescens into the city's fabled fog, both mingled together and rolled inland to saturate its unsuspecting residents. Dubbed Operation Sea Spray by the Navy and labeled the vulnerability test, this first record recorded excursion into madness by the, CIA, by, the, by the America's armed forces is little known until this day. A week later, 11 patients were being treated at Stanford University Hospital, hospital for severe urinary tract infections resistant to all known antibiotics. One would die when S. Marcescens colonized his heart. The Navy, quite pleased with itself, would reckon it had infected not only San Francisco, but Albany, Berkeley, Daly City, Colma, Oakland, San Leandro, and Sausalito, too. It estimated some 800,000 residents, many of them the most important people in the West burgeoning defense industry, each inhaled millions of the insidious bacteria throughout the testing period. A 1958 report, 51 report, Reads, it was noted that a successful BW, that's biological warfare attack, on this area can be launched from the sea, and that the effective dosages can be reduced over relatively large areas. In a recently declassified 1952 Navy's training film, the Navy is shown enthusiastically attacking the coast of San Francisco with what it laments to be a rather crude spraying system. Later in the film, the Navy uses fluorescent tracer particles to attack the southeast coast of the United States by sea, covering what is estimated to be some 20,000 square miles of inland Georgia, South Carolina, and North Carolina by taking advantage of the favorable wind conditions from the coast. Fluorescent tracer particles were a euphemism at the time being used by America and England for zinc-cadmium sulfide, Cadmium had been 
classified by both the British and Americans as a chemical weapon since World War II. They were just getting started. In 1962, the Kennedy administration, acting on a directive issued in January of 61 by Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara, authorized America's Department of Defense to launch Project 112, a comprehensive and highly classified testing program that over 50 years later, Americans still know nothing about. Project 112, along with a spinoff, Project SHAD, that's Shipboard Hazard and Defense, officially authorized the ghouls at Camp Dietrich and their dragon soldier counterpart to attack their own comrades in arms and the very citizens they were supposed to be protecting with chemical and bacteriological weapons, euphemistically called simulants. The project was run in conjunction with similar ones being carried out throughout the length and breadth of empire from Canada to Australia and from America to Great Britain. Unbeknownst to the enlisted sailors aboard them, at least 13 American warships were exposed by simulated attack to both chemical and biological weapons under Project SAD alone. The DLD never publicly considered, let alone acknowledged the long-term consequences to the health of the sailors aboard those ships. In fact, the existence of Project 112 and Project SAD were categorically denied by the military in May 2000 when the CBS Evening News investigative report exposed them. The tests were global, with much of Project SAD taking place in the South Pacific, but they were coordinated and orchestrated by the Army Chemical Corps operating at a Deseret Test Center at Fort Douglas, Utah. Administrative support came from the Dugway Proving Ground about 80 miles away, bypassing the usual Defense Department channels and reporting directly to the Joint Chiefs of Staff and the U.S. Cabinet consisting of the Secretary of Defense, the Secretary of State, and to a far lesser extent, the Secretary of Agriculture. Deseret Test Center was in operation, operation from 1962 to 1973. Simulation experiments on American citizens would continue officially until 1966. In all likelihood, the carnage continued to 1969, when President Nixon theoretically put an end to it with the presidential order, which unequivocally halted germ warfare research and the stockpile of biological weapons. Until 1966, America's armed forces were known to have biologically and chemically attacked its own citizens at least 239 times in eight American cities, among them New York City, the world's financial center. Not to be outdone by the antics of the colonies, Great Britain's Ministry of Defense unleashed the madmen of Port and Down right into their own living room. On a 60-page report alone issued at the turn of the 21st century lists a hundred such attacks, always euphemistically called experiments by the MLD on British citizens. In the fluorescent particle trials from 1955 to 1963, residents of Cornwall were bombed by air and Somerset sprayed by truck like mosquitoes with zinc cadmium sulfide, a known cause of lung cancer. At the same time the British were carrying out the fluorescent particle trials, America was performing the large area coverage experiments known as Operation LAC and carried out from the end of 1957 to 1958. This time, the Army Chemical Corps used a C-119, or a flying boxcar, borrowed from the Air Force to make repetitive runs over America's heartland, saturating most of the U.S. and a good part of Canada with zinc cadmium sulfide. From 1961 to 1968, during England's large area cover trials, 
more than a million people along the south coast of England, from Torquay to New Forest, were attacked with, by sea with E. coli and Bacillus cobigi, said to be mimics of anthrax. In, joint, in a joint effort with their American counterparts, British scientists sprayed the hapless residents of South Dawson from 1971 to 1975 with massive quantities of saracium marcescens. There is every reason to believe Blom's little pet was also the bacterium of choice in the sabotage trials, which took place from 52 to 64. On the flimsiest of excuses, again, to check target vulnerability, government buildings in the London subway system, including the one under Whitehall, were targeted and attacked with bacterial markers by the lunatics from Porton Down. The few in the Western are aware of England and America's environmental modifications in the 30 years following World War II are not... That and are not clinically as insane, are being told Seracia marcescens produces a bright reddish-orange triprolol pigment called protogeosin, which makes it easy to track when used as a marker in bacteriological warfare tests. Most of the literature available to the public tells that prior to the 50s, S. marcescens was considered a harmless, non-pathogenic saprophyte. This is nonsense, as in 1896 it was already known in Germany that the, quote, organism contributed to more deaths than many pathogenic bacteria. Blom very well may have been using seracium marcescens as a marker on enemy, enemy troop formations and experiments with captured Soviets and Poles, but he would have never rec- have recommended it to be used as such by his new benefactors and within their own borders on their own citizens. Seracium marcescens is a gram-negative bacterium. That means, simply, the mesh-like layer called peptodiglycan, encased in the cell's plasma membrane, will not retain the crystal violet stain used in the gram-staining test after being washed with alcohol. Gram-positive bacteria has a much thicker peptodiglycan layer, which constitutes around 90% of its dry weight, as opposed to only about 10% gram-negative bacteria. Gram-positive bacteria is more sensitive to ionizing radiations than gram-negative bacteria, making it far less likely to survive radiation mutagenesis, a process by which the genetic information of bacteria is changed through exposure to ionizing radiations. In the case of the neutron radiation, a form of indirect ionizing radiation, which Bohm was no doubt treating his pets with, is caused it causes radiation-enhanced diffusion. Over time, in inorganic substances as zirconia, urania, spinels, pyrochlores, and silicon carbide, ceramics used in the construction of particle accelerators and reactors, and hence diffusion leads to what is called microstructural evolution. What is above board about microstructural evolution, which is really very little, is that the Office of Naval Research, ONR, is handling out, handing out the choicest of government grants to the most gifted of atomic scientists who choose to work in that field. Called 3D printing or additive manufacturing by the ONR, it is a technology depicted by Pahart's disciple Gene Roddenberry in his landmark television series Star Trek. Instead of building, say, a propeller, as the ONR does in its explanation, by subtracting material, as is done in machining, Materials lay it on by fusing it together at the atomic level. In Star Trek, when Scotty needs a new part for his warp drive, 
He simply punches a barcode into the ship's computer. And, part, and the part is waiting for him a few hours later, built from the atoms by the, by the computer. According to Roddenberry, this technology is at least 250 years in the future. But the ONR is far more optimistic. Besides anticipating near future dividends, both in the marketplace and as a cultural modification, they are predicting the next 30 years will see dramatic increase in our ability to create parts on demand. Roddenberry, who aside from his relationship with the ever-dubious Paharich, was also taking advice for his, on his scripts from the perhaps even more dubious, if that's possible, Rand Corporation. This did not begin in the bowels of the now forever sealed underground citadels of National Socialism, although no doubt that is where its metathesis took place. It all began at the University of Wisconsin almost a decade before World War II, ostensibly before another World War was even a gleam in anyone's eye. The original bacterial strains were brought from UW to Camp Dietrich by Baldwin. In all likelihood, UW is also responsible for transporting its little prize across the ocean to Porton Downs. The Army has destroyed all records of what it was doing at Camp Dietrich from 1942 to 1955, and anybody who could say is conveniently dead. But a note found in an archive of Baldwin's papers dated February 19, 1943, contained an order from Dr. Philides for, for a batch of B. subtilis spores. Dr. Paul Philides was the lead bacteriologist for the British in the British Biological Weapons Program. The Empire's original bacteria of choice was apparently B. subtilis variety niger, what they were calling red strain. This is just a misnomer in the taxonomic classification, perhaps deliberate. The name of the bacteria is most appropriately B. eutrophius or variety globigii, the closest known relative of Bacillus subtilis. And B. subtilis... B. subtilis is also called grass bacillus because it is commonly found in the gastrointestinal tract of ruminants like cattle, an animal that in America for the last 50 years has been turning up with alarming frequency dead and surgically mutilated. Nobody has ever been caught doing it, and the animals usually have their blood and various internal organs and their anuses removed. B. subtilis is referred to in Wikipedia as one of the bacterial champions in secreted enzyme production. Outside a barrage of extremely complicated microbiology tests and the fact that it will not readily swap DNA with it, the military strain can only be distinguished from B. subtilis by its black color, reminiscent of the sentient oil in the X-Files. In lieu of the facts, Information available to the public would have them believe that the Empire was searching for a suitable bacterium to use as a marker for Bacillus Intractus so they could run field experiments. Nothing could be more absurd. B. Intractus is a pop gun. It was used by the Japanese against the Chinese in Manchuria during the 30s and early 40s with little to no effect. It is deadly to animals, not humans. Just like Baum, who they were exchanging information with, the Japanese found the plague to be far more effective. In 1944, B. anthracnose already, could already be treated with penicillin. In fact, Philides had, been, had, had done live testing with it on the island of Gurnyard, located in the northwest coast of Scotland, 
and 42 and 43. You have 5 million cattle cakes laced with BN tractors ready to be dropped on Germany. It was estimated the cakes would kill 30% of Germany's cattle. But Feliz never did get to drop his anthrax cattle cakes on the Germans. No doubt Allied High Command knew very well that Blom would have gleefully responded, this time with Hitler's blessing, by using the plague to kill more than 30% of Great Britain's people. The forensic evidence used by bacteriologists to pinpoint the taxonomy of the Camp Dietrich strain indicates the bacteria was mutated over and over again at Camp Dietrich, Porton Down, Edgewood, and the Dugway Proving Grounds. The best bacteriologists America and Britain had to offer were working night and day on this. After the war, the CIA ended up tossing its own senior bacteriologist, Frank Olson, out a window in front of Madison Square Garden to maintain secrecy. During the war, the empire was in the middle of a life-and-death struggle with National Socialism. Its biological weapons program was just as important as the Manhattan Project, if not more so. They were looking for a weapon that would win. It's a documented fact that the empire's bacteriologists were cultivating strains that exhibited elevated strains of sporulation. When certain types of bacteria, almost exclusively gram-positive, are unable to tolerate their environment, and they have exhausted every option to adapt, they produce endospores. The bacterium divides within its cell wall. One side then absorbs the other. What is left is an almost indestructible, multi-layered vessel containing the genetic material, cytoplasma, necessary enzymes, and whatever else it needs to sustain activity that is now 10 million times slower than the metabolic rate of growing bacterium. When the mother cell dies, the cell wall degrades and the endospore is freed. This is called sporulation. When conditions become more hospital, the endospore, not completely dormant, senses the change and reverses the process, transforming itself back into a vegetative cell. No one knows how long a bacteria can survive as endospores. Claims have been made for the revival of endospores that are 40 million years old. B. subtilis is the undisputed world champion of sporulation. Bacteriologists have always considered gram-negative bacteria incapable of sporulation because it lacked the hard outer shell necessary to produce endospores. But recently, wastewater from a sewage treatment plant in Saku, Japan, was analyzed and found to contain an endospore-forming bacterium that produced S. marcescens signature red pigment protodeosin. The bacterium it was also able to hydrolyze cooked meat. In other words, decompose it and split it into other compounds by reacting with water. These are telltale indications that it is S. marcescens, but endospores have never been found before in any seracea. They are characteristic of bacillus, which is always present in abundance in sewage treatment plants, particularly B. subtilis, which is, is used to normalize the pH of wastewater. Using S. marcescens and B. subtilis as controls, comparisons tests were run, and the mysterious bacterium was found to be a new subspecies of S. marcescens, dubbed KREDT. This is the first recorded instance of an Entobacteriaceae a large family of extremely dangerous pathogens to which both S. marcescens and Yersinia pestis belong, belong ever-producing endospores. 
It is believed that due to the presence of high concentrations of magnesium and silicate in the treatment water, the Esmarcessus was able to swap genes with the, with the bacillus. B. subtilis may, very, may well be one of the bacterial ch champions in secreted enzyme production, but as Bloom well knew, it's not even playing in the same league as Esmarcessus. Esmarcessus is the pinkish oily film that appears in bathrooms that aren't disinfected regularly. Whenever there is moisture, suitable temperatures, and a lack of fresh air, no matter how extreme other environmental conditions, Esmarcessus will not only survive, it will grow. It, it has been found flourishing in disinfectant, antiseptics, double distilled water, and human blood. When growing in temperatures above 98 degrees Fahrenheit, Esmarcessus is pale white. When its nutrient requirements are met, the intensity of the red pigmented produced in, in individual cells is regulated by population density, making the protozoan itself what microbiologists call an autoinducer. In bacteria, autoinducers regulate the way genes are expressed. It is believed that bacteria use autoinducers the same way insects use phenoromes. Both constitute a language expressed through chemical manipulation at a molecular level by which the communal intelligence of a hive or colony is coordinated. Science refers to this as quorum sensing. Dozens of scholarly papers have been written on Esmarcessin's use of protegesin as a means of quorum sensing. Dozens more have been written about the uses of quorum sensing in robotics. All the way back in 2006, a 104-page presentation was delivered in Biomicro and Nanosystems Conference in San Francisco titled Swarm Intelligence for Cooperation of Bio-Nano-Robots Using Quorum Sensing. Ten pathogens have been known to hijack their host body through molecular manipulation of chemicals. In, most in, the, mo in the most extreme case, the fungus Ophocordesipsis unilateris sometimes referred to as the zombie fungus, turns its host, an ant, into a zombie that lives only to serve the life cycle of its parasite. The ant leaves its life with its, with its colony in the tree to live in the dark, dank, dark places of the rainforest floor, as if it were a fungus. Finally, it crawls up out on a branch, clasps its mandibles to a leaf, and dies as the fungus bursts through its head and spores. In the case of parasitic worm, Spinocordodes telini and Paragodius tricuspidus, they forced the, the, their cricket or grasshopper host to leap into a body of water and drown. The worm then emerges from the insect's floating corpse to swim away and find a mate. Studies of Petrus have shown that it produces effector molecules that manipulate the cricket's central nervous system. Estellini reproduces proteins used in the insect signaling pathway. These chemical signals by which the parasite hijacks the body of its host are called metamimetic molecules. Scientific studies have shown that mosquitoes carrying Plasmodium phallosporum, the parasitic protozoa that causes malaria, not only exhibit heightened predatory senses, but are three times more likely to be attracted to human odors. Toxoplasma gondii, a parasitic protozoan that causes toxoplasmosis, a disease found all over the world, estimates suggest that over 30% of the world's human population is infected. 
Tigandi has been shown to alter behavior in affected rodents. It's indeterminate host, which uses it uses as a vector in order to increase the rodent's chances of being eaten by a cat. It's target host, the only animal in which it can sexually produce. Infected rodents was all fear of cats, their greatest natural predator. In humans, infection by T. gondii is held in check by the immune system, and toxioplasmosis is usually asymptomatic. But studies have shown a strong correlation between schizophrenia and the disease. Some studies have shown that women with toxioplasmosis are more likely to cheat on their husbands, and men more likely to be aggressive, with slower reaction times for both sexes. Bacteria may even be even more subtle in the manipulation of its host. Subtilis in Latin means to be finely spun, to be exact, to be minutely thorough, strict and precise. Bacteriologists now suspect that the microbiota in the people's stomach may actually dictate behavior patterns in their human host that will more likely result in the bacteria getting their nutrients.